what a pleasure it is to be here with you guys today. My name is Jared. I'm actually one of the worship pastors here at the Bridge Princeton, and it is a pleasure to be here. If you are joining us today and uh, you hadn't been a part of this journey over the last few weeks, we have been in this series called Faves. And the idea, the premise behind it is this, that uh, all of us have some type of favorite sermon if we've preached before. And so we wanted to kind of share that with you. But coming up with a favorite is pretty tough with anything, isn't it? I mean, if I told you, hey, guys, what is your favorite song of all times? It would probably take you a minute, and then you're still juggling between which one is your absolute favorite. You probably favorite for a couple of specific reasons. If it's a song, maybe you just like the, the solo that's in between there, the guitar solo, the instrumental break. You like the band you grew up. It brings you back to the days where, you know, you were riding around in your Chevy Nova or VW bus, had a full head of hair, you know, and you and your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend. It's just a significant part. If I said, what's your favorite movie of all time? Well, let's just try it. I'll give you five seconds. On the count of three, I just want you to shout it back to me. Favorite movie of all time. Ready? One, two, three. I heard Top Gun, still Magnolias. So a couple classics in there. Why is it your favorite? Because, uh, you know, storyline, maybe you like things that are suspenseful, that's kind of hard to figure out, Uh, favorite character, who knows. But all of us have some type of favorite, and there's qualifying factors of what makes it our favorite. So I was a youth pastor for five years. So I was used to preaching every single week, once to twice a week, but it was always high school, middle school students. So as I was going back through my favorite sermons, I thought, let me see what I can find. And as I'm scrolling through, you know, those types of things, I thought, nope, they wouldn't understand that. It's a bunch of kids' references. They're all outdated. MySpace isn't even up no more. Uh, You know, and just going through all these little things of like what I thought would be good. And eventually I landed on one that um, is pretty important and I think significant to me, which I'll tell you why in just a minute. But first, before I do that, let me just kind of set up this, okay? All of us like convenience, Every single person in here likes convenience. Let me give you a couple of examples of how we use this. Uh, I would say probably most people in here who are adults uh, have bought a car in their lifetime, right? You bought a car, boat, whatever, and in the process of buying that, something happens. You first figure out, um, you know, what kind of car that you want. Once you figure out that kind of car that you want, uh, you might go online Look at a couple of different places. There's so many resources these days. You've got Auto Trader, you've got CarMax, Carvana, you can go on Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, the whole shebang. But once you've identified the car you want, there's something else that happens right after that. And the thing, the one thing that determines whether or not you can or will get that car, you can use the filter button and the drop down to select it. Anybody want to guess what that is? Price. How much it's going to what? Cost you. Because at the end of the day, we always want to know how much something is going to cost us. So once you've figured out that car, you're like, oh, this is it. But then you might be a little over budget. So you have to make sacrifices, don't you? Instead of, you know, getting the one that had the premium wheel package, you get the one that has the less, you know, nicer wheels. And you might have to sacrifice, you know, the interior instead of it being leather. Now you drop it down to cloth interior. Hey, I still like this car. Maybe I want to go from being able to have automatic windows. Kids, there actually was this thing that you used to do, and they would go down when you turn them like this, okay? So let your parents show you that on YouTube. Um, so, so they make, you know, sacrifices based on a certain price range, but we're always comparing the cost with everything in our lives. Same thing is true in shopping. 
If, if I said, hey, you guys got, uh, I'm going to give everybody here $100, and all of you guys go out and buy groceries, go to the grocery store and get what you need, chances are you probably wouldn't go to Whole Foods, right? $100 at Whole Foods will get you an apple, some organic ice cream, and gluten-free bread, and you're done. You've already lost all your money, right? You're going to go somewhere where you can get a little bit more, you know, bang for your buck. Those of you that are here a little older probably remember door-to-door salesmen. You don't see those anymore. But you used to, back when I was a kid growing up, there was people that would come door-to-door. A couple of different examples of this. These guys would come up and they'd have trucks. And then the trucks would have like a cooler on the back, a freezer of some sort. Come knocking on the door and they're trying to sell you meat. And they would sell you this meat. They'd come up and they'd lay all the, the cases out. They'd tell you how this is just the highest quality meat you've ever seen in your entire life. We've got Kobe beef. We've got Wagyu beef. We've got all these different things. It's the top 1% of the world's beef. And ultimately, that's great. And it all looks good. But what? How much does it cost? Y'all have ever seen a vacuum cleaner salesman? They come and knock on the door and they're like, hey, let me clean your living room for you. And they can get that thing out and suck up every cat, dog hair, all the Legos that you never found in the thick carpet. And you're like, just go ahead and do the rest of the house while you're at it, you know. And they're working on that thing and they're like, look how good this vacuum is. And you're like, that's great. How much does it cost? There was even these guys that would come around with these squirt bottles. They'd knock on your door and say, hey, I've got this cleaner. It's the best cleaner in your life. You can get rid of Windex, Clorox. You can get rid of all these things. It's the only cleaner you'll ever need. Here, let me show you. They spray it on your windows. They wipe it off. Look at that. That's the cleanest your glass has ever been. They'll take that little brass handle that was sitting there that's all corroded and dull now, spray it on the brass handle. They wipe it. It's shining like it's brand new. They take it and spray it on the brick. They clean the brick. Now you've got one clean brick and the rest of them are dirty. They take it. Look, you can even use this for mouthwash. Clean your breath. They'll spray it in there. I mean, it's just totally safe. It's the best thing ever. And you always say, okay, great. How much does it cost Times have changed, haven't they? You don't see many door-to-door salesmen anymore. You don't see people walking down the street. If you're driving home and you pass by a couple people walking and you see them there and you're like, oh, they're coming to my house, what do you do? You go in, you lock the doors, turn the lights off, grab the kids, stick a sock in their mouth. Everybody hold your breath, make it look like it's a abandoned house, that nobody lives there because we're just afraid to talk to people anymore. People who buy a new house, the first thing that they do is once they figure out they want to buy a house, a lot of them will go to the bank. They'll get a a pre-approval letter. They'll find out how much money they qualify for because they need to know the cost that they're going to spend. Then they go on Zillow or any of these realty websites and they filter based on price and how much they can spend because ultimately at the end of the day, the cost is the most important thing. So the point I'm trying to make is this. With all that being said, in life, we want to know what things will cost us. Those of you who have kids know that if you get them involved in sports, a couple of things are going to happen. You're going to give up nights of the week for practice. You're going to give up money to buy jerseys and all the necessity of the equipment and so forth. If your kids are in dance, you're going to give up a couple of nights a week rehearsals. You're going to go to the performance. You're going to have to buy costumes and the whole shebang. But you, you know that up front that it is going to cost you something. So the reason why this is probably one of my favorite sermons is because the guy that we're going to look at today might be the only person that we see in Scripture who got the full cost of following Jesus up front. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me today to Mark chapter 10. 
we're going we're gonna to be. We're going to look at Mark's account of this. A couple of things to note before we start reading is this. It's also in the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, and this is not a parable. Okay, this is not an, an example that Jesus gave. This is a true account of an interaction that Jesus had. And your Bible may list the subheading at the top to tell you kind of the, the title, if you will, of this story. But it's called The Rich Young Ruler. So we're going to start at verse 17 in Mark chapter 10. And we're going to read on. So we'll have it on the screen. Feel free to follow along in the app. Uh, it's in the notes section as well. But let's read together. It says, As he, meaning Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. And knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a couple of things if you're an underliner note taker. Uh, some key points in the story uh, is he ran up, knelt down, used the phrase good teacher. And so what shall I do if you want to underline that? Now what we know about this is this is at the end of Jesus' ministry, towards the end of his ministry. He has just uh, crossed, he's on the east side of the Jordan, and he's in a place called Perea. The other accounts in the gospel tell us that this man was rich. He had a lot of money, a lot of wealth. He was young, which is also important because in that time, you didn't always see people who were young who had a lot of money. There were certain cases, but by you know most terms, people who had a lot of money were older. So he had that going for him. And that he was also a ruler. And by ruler, he was a, a religious person. He might have served or worked in the synagogues that were there. Um, typically, that's what most scholars believe happened. But in this first part, we see things that I feel like are interesting to the story. The first one is that he ran up. And, and running, when put in context, can mean a couple of different things. For example, as, if as a parent, your kid comes up to you and just walks up to you and says, hey mom, there is water on the floor in the bathroom and it's coming out of the toilet. You're like, okay, not a big deal. You just, can you wipe it up? And, or you'll go get a towel and clean it up. If they walk up to you, it has one context. If your kid comes running up to you, hey, mom, there is water coming out of the toilet and you need to come right, right now. You immediately just go into mode of, oh, no, this is bad. You know, it's flooded. You have no idea what it looks like. So, so the running aspect significant, whatever that word is, signifies importance, right? It means that it was important to him. The second thing we need to note is he knelt down. Okay, the kneeling down shows a posture, it shows uh, humility, it shows a genuine care. And so he kneels down in front of Jesus. And by nature, all of us, I don't know about you, but I feel like this is true, we try to do things on our own if we can. By nature, if, if I don't have to call a neighbor or a friend or a family member to come help me do something, then I'll just do it myself. I try to do as much as I can for myself by myself. If it's required, then I'll reach out to somebody. But ultimately, I want to do it all by myself. And so this rich young ruler wanted to know what he could do on his own. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a couple of things that 
we can't do on our own. I mean, there's obviously a lot of things, but these are just a few funny things to kind of put in context of things we can't do. So let me give you a few. The first one you can't do is you can't talk while breathing in. Now, don't try it because you'll sound like a wheezing animal, I, I promise you. If you cannot talk while you're breathing in, it's just it's the way the body's functioning. You can't lick your elbow, right? You can't tickle yourself. Now, you ever tried to tickle yourself? It just doesn't work. You can't move your leg in a clockwise motion and draw a number six with your hand. And some of you are just dying right now to try it. I know. Go ahead. Just try it. You can't, you can't clockwise and write a six. It's just you'll be trying the whole service. So it, it's just something we can't do. And so a few things to point out here. What he calls Jesus is really important. The phrase good teacher is a phrase that was not commonly used in the Bible. It's actually probably one of the most um, respectful greetings that you would ever see. So he didn't say Lord, he didn't say Savior, he didn't call him Messiah, he didn't call him God. He calls him good teacher. In Jewish tradition, it was understood that the word good was only used in one context, and that was to talk about the character or nature of God. It was the only time the word used good. We do this all the time. We use good for everything. How was the Lion King? It was good. How was the food that you guys had? It was good. You know, so we use good, but here, good was not associated much because it was reserved only for talking about God. So this rich young ruler, he's trying to flatter Jesus. Now, what we have to figure out is what the standard of goodness is. All of us have a standard when it comes to goodness. Let me give you an example just to put it in perspective. If I said, hey, how did you like the Lion King movie for those that saw it? Some of the people would say it was good. Some people would say, oh, it was okay, but I like the other one better. It's a subjective thing. If I said, you know, tell me a good Chinese restaurant to go to in Goldsboro. You guys could give a list of different Chinese restaurants and there would be a subjective feeling. People would have different opinions. Ultimately for me, if it, after, you know, three hours, I'm feeling okay after eating Chinese, it was good. But it's a completely subjective thing. And so one person can love it, one person can hate it. So we have to set a standard for goodness. So let's just, let's do that together. You ready? For those of you who have animals, uh, if you say, let's, let's say you have a cat. If I said, you know, if you, is your cat good? You have a good cat? You'd say, well, he, he doesn't use the bathroom on the floor. He uses the litter box. He, he doesn't just randomly freak out for no reason and run into other rooms while, you know, I'm sitting in there. He, do, he doesn't claw the couch or mess up the furniture or attack new people he sees for the first time. So by cat standards, he's a good one. Now if I said, what, what about people? Is it, is it a good person? Are we saying, well, he, he, I don't use the bathroom on the floor. I, I use the toilet. I don't just randomly freak out and run into the other room when people are there. I don't bite or claw new people that come into my house. No, because it's a completely different standard of goodness. So what is the standard? We're trying to figure out what's the standard of goodness. According to God, here it is. The standard of goodness is his own character. His own character is the standard. That's the standard of righteousness. Now, obviously, this guy had pondered this question before he came to meet Jesus that day. 
he had thought about the question that he was going to ask. Maybe he had seen Jesus perform the ministry. Maybe through the grapevine he had heard about the ministry and all that Jesus had done. Somehow, way, he knew that the answer he needed was in the hands of this man that now stood before him. And so he thought, surely this guy can tell me what I can do to secure my eternity. Because at the end of the day, let's be honest, nobody wants to die. We all think about eternity, heaven, the afterlife. No matter what you believe, I mean, it it crosses people's minds. Some people say, oh, this is it, and then we die. Some people say, oh, there's an afterlife, there's purgatory, there's heaven, there's hell. And and all these people develop their opinions. I mean, for centuries, people have been trying to figure out how to live longer. Right? I mean, there's all types of supplements that they take, all types of creams and surgeries that they get. I mean, ultimately, to extend the life, people think about it. They had that lady on the news the other week. She's 116 years old. Do you guys see this? They asked her, what is the secret to living to 116? She gave two things. Take lots of naps and eat bacon every day. That was her, that was her answer. And so we think about this all the time. Same thing for other religions. Ultimately, most of them have some type of answer of what the afterlife or eternity looks like. Some people say to, to get to heaven or, or to you know, go to the, the good place, they would say, well, you need to keep the law of the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, follow that, that's all you need to do. Some people would say, all you have to do is have the good outweigh the bad. If you have enough good deeds and it's on a scale, the good deeds need to supersede the bad ones. And that's what gets you, makes you right with God. That's what gets you to heaven. Some people would say it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus. And then a whole bunch of works, a whole bunch of things that you have to do to show that faith. And then you will be made right with God. And then you will be able to make it to heaven. This rich young ruler, by society standards, He had it all. And he wants to know what it will take to secure his eternity. And so what does Jesus respond? In verse 18, he answers his question with a question. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so Jesus challenges what he just said. He says, you know, why are you calling me good? Because Jesus knew what good was only referred to. It was for God. And so the question was to see if he would be able to flesh out, work out the implications of the word good. Would he acknowledge the deity of who Jesus was, the Messiah at that time? Would he be prepared to give that account? Verse 19, Jesus goes on to say, you know the commandments. I mean, when you think about that, like Jesus already knew everything about this guy. He knew what he was, he was thinking. He knew, knew what he had done. And he says to him, you know the commandments. I mean, you, you work in the synagogue. You're, you're a ruler. You had all these things. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teachers, hey, man, I have done and kept all these things from my youth up. In other words, I'm good. Murder? Nope, hadn't done that one. Honor my father and mother? Ever since I was a kid, hadn't committed adultery? Nope. Hadn't done that one, hadn't stolen? Nope, got that one down. Now, what is interesting about this, if you know anything about the Ten Commandments, it's broken up into two sections. You have the first part, which deals with our relationship between us and God. Talks about, you know, no other gods before thee, no graven images, um, you know, speaking God's name in vain. The, The second half of 
the commandments deal with person to person. In other words, how we treat other people. And so they're broken up between that. He doesn't even say covet. He doesn't deal with that. And we know in Matthew chapter 5, this is, you know, taking place afterwards when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've looked at a man or woman lustfully in your heart, then you've committed adultery with them. You've sinned against them. He says, you say, you've heard it said, don't kill. I say if you hate a brother, if you look at him and you have hatred for him, then guess what? It's the exact same thing. So, so Jesus could have fleshed that out. He could have called him out on it, but he didn't. He just, he let it slide. He let it ride. And he goes on to him and he says this, looking at him, verse 21, Jesus felt a love for him. In other words, there was this compassion that was there for this guy. Now, I don't know if the, the man was still kneeling down at that moment when, when they began to talk. If he's still there, he's talking to Jesus. But he had this compassion, this genuine care for this man who sought truth. And Jesus says to him, okay, one thing you lack. Just one thing that you lack. Now, let's, let's play this back. You ready? Sees Jesus walking, knows that's who he needs to talk to, runs up, falls down, asks the right question, gives him the answer. Jesus now says, one thing you lack. This is great news. I mean, it could have been, could have been five, could have been ten, could have been twenty. Have you guys ever uh, built something, wrote a paper, um, painted a picture, or, or done anything where you've gotten feedback for, for work you've done, and you've asked somebody's opinion, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this song that I wrote? And there's like, it's good. There's just one thing I'd change. You're like, oh, sweet. I mean, it's just one thing. It's not a whole lot. So this rich young ruler, after knowing he's given this response, even though Jesus knew, you know, that he hadn't, tells him one thing. You ready? Guy's like, I'm ready. For us, I mean, we'd be like, all right, let me, let me write it down, find a pen, paper, get my notes app out, type it out. Just want to make sure that I've got it down. Feedback, you ready? He's like, yep, here it is. Go and sell all you possess. Give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. That's it. That's all you got to do. Everything you have, get rid of it. Give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. I mean, it's like his, that guy's balloon was popped at that very instance. Everything he thought that he knew or heard, I'm sure he didn't re, uh, anticipate that response or reaction. Why did Jesus want him to give all that he had away? I mean, and he didn't even say, listen, listen, listen. If you'll just give all that to me, if you'll give it to me and the disciples and the work that we, we're doing, we'll use it for good. We'll go around and spread that. No, he says, give it all to the poor and then come and follow me. First thing is, Jesus doesn't need our worldly treasures, the things that are significant and important to you and I, and, and God's mind and Jesus' standards, it's nothing. And so what he was saying was, money is this man's God. It's, it's your God. It's your number one. It's your idol. It's what defines you. It's what controlled you. It's what had your heart. It's the one thing, the one thing that would keep this man from going to heaven. And so he's given a choice to make a sacrifice or not because it would be essentially a sacrifice. Now, just for a moment, let's, let's jump out of this story real quick 
and you don't have to turn there because I'm only just going to paraphrase it and hit it real quick and we're going to jump back. In Luke 10, Jesus goes into this account with a lawyer and the lawyer asks him the same question. He says, you know, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus responds to him. He doesn't say, take all you got, sell it, give it to the poor, follow me. This man, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he tells him. John chapter 4, Jesus comes to the account with the woman at the well. Same thing comes up. What do I have to do? Eternal life. Here it is. Jesus speaks to her. Doesn't say anything about love God, love neighbor. Doesn't say anything about give all the stuff you have to the poor and then follow me. To, to her, he says, what? You've been married five times. The guy you're with now, he's not your husband. Go sin no more. Because each and every situation we see are different for the thing that controls us. Every one of those people wrestled with something as number one as their God in their life. And so this man wanted eternal life through his works. He was hoping it would be like an add-on. He wanted it as an add-on, but the truth is, we understand through Scripture that our works and our deeds, no matter what we do, it will never make us right and get us into heaven. It is only the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, salvation through him that makes us right with God. You can go on every missions trip that Kentucky gives, every trip Belize does. You can go and serve at the soup kitchen every single week on Sunday. You can come in here and go through the motions, but ultimately at the end of the day, the deeds is not what gives you the eternal life. It is only the saving faith and the grace that Jesus did in his work. So Jesus says, you want to know what it will cost you? Here you go. Everything. Everything. And so this man gets the cost up front. He didn't have to wait to the end of his life to see what it would look like. He got the cost up front. And so in verse 22 it goes on to say, but at these words he's saddened. Now maybe he's still knelt down. I don't know. Jesus looking down at him. Some other translation says that at those words, his head fell down when he heard this because he had to make a decision. He had to make a choice. And then it goes on to say, and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. This guy had it all at that moment. He was at the right time, the right place, the right person. He asked the right question and he got the answer, but he, he had the wrong decision. Everything was lining up. Now, in our lives, every single day, you and I make comparisons between things. If we're forced to make a decision, some people are like old school. They make a pros and cons list, get out a sheet of paper, you know, draw it down the middle, fold it in half, write it down. Okay, if we're going to move here, then there's the pros. We're da-da-da-da, and you list out one, two, three, four, five, A, B, C, D. Should I get this new car, right? Let me go check Carfax. Let me filter the by price. Let me, you know, all these whole things. And you got a pros and cons list. We make comparisons all the time in our life to make decisions. And so we play out the hypotheticals. And so this is tough because he truly... I believe, wanted eternal life. But the cost was too great. He's thinking in his mind, like, does he know how much I'm worth? Does he know how much I have? Does he know how much property that I have to my name? What I'm known for. This man loved his wealth. 
And so the question the rich young ruler was ultimately asking was not, what do I need to do to have eternal life? The question he was asking is, what kind of behavioral modifications, what little thing can I do to put you in my debt? What can I do to make you do for me what I want you to do? And so he wanted it as an addition, not a substitution. Now, let's be honest. I'm sure if at that moment he's kneeling down, Jesus said, okay, here you go. You ready? If you'll just pray this prayer, you're good. If, you can just, if you'll just pray this prayer, repeat after me, I'm sure he would have. If he said, if you'll just make this commitment today and tell me you'll do these few things, then I'm sure he would have. If he would have said, hey, you're a guy that has great wealth. If you'll just give a little bit, give a tenth away, he probably would have done that as well. But it never would have fixed the bigger issue. What had control of him in his heart? And so he had to make a sacrifice. To follow him, he would have to lay it all down and give to the poor. Let go of what is in his hand and grab a hold of the hand of Jesus. So his stuff was his God. It was his idol. And Jesus couldn't be the Lord of his life while he still possessed it all. The same thing was true for the woman at the well. And until she was able to release that, that was what controlled her as well. We don't get the cross without a cost. And ultimately, and most likely, it is our life. Because we make sacrifices of what is truly important to us, right? We will give up time, we'll give up energy and comfort to do the things that are important to us. Those of you who have kids who are involved in sports, you will give up a Saturday. You'll go to rehearsals, you'll practice, you'll buy all the jerseys and equipment that needs to. You'll sit on the field if they play soccer and watch the kids just run around kicking it, not even ever scoring and just cheering them on. And they're just having fun chasing the butterflies and you're just like, you love it because it's your child. You'll make the sacrifice. You'll... Send your, your kid to dance and they'll, you know, be there and excited. You'll watch four hours of dancing and your kid's in one number. And you'll buy all the costumes and you'll endure all of that. Buy the flowers because it is something that is important to you. You will sacrifice that time. And the same thing is true as it relates to us. And following Jesus, we have to make the sacrifice. But this man couldn't do it. So he leaves. And then something happens. Because there's people there and they're watching. All eyes are on this guy and the conversation that has taken place between him and Jesus. You guys have been there. You ever been in a store or something and, and an argument breaks out or something that just catches your attention and everybody like focuses in like, oh, what's going to happen? Everybody's standing around. And when he walks away, verse 23 says, and Jesus looks around. Why? Why is he looking around? You know what I believe? Many scholars believe that probably the reason he's looking around is because there's a crowd and most likely there might have been even other rich people there. He looks around and then he says to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't a question. This is a statement that he is making. It's not, do you want to know how hard it is that it'll be? And they say, Jesus, tell us how hard it'll be. It's so hard that da-da-da-da. No, what he's saying is how hard it'll be for rich people to enter into the kingdom of God. 
the hard, the word there, you know what it means translated? Impossible. You're like, impossible? What do you mean it's impossible? First of all, wealth tends to breed self-sufficiency and false security, leading those to have it, to imagine that they don't need the divine resources of God. The Bible says in verse 24 that the disciples after hearing this are amazed at the statement that was just, and Jesus knew that. They're like, what? And so to further illustrate the point, he makes another statement. Children, children around, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Let me give you an example. Are you ready? Here it comes. Let me tell you how hard it is. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, all of us have probably in some way, shape, or form uh, dealt with a needle, right? I'm just going to hold one up here for just a second for illustration. I'll let them zoom in on it. Here's what I've learned about needles. We're talking about camels getting through the eye of a needle. I can't get a piece of thread through a needle. I don't know if you guys are good at that or not. Terrible at it. Need to find somebody with fingernails, right? Having to lick the end of the string, put it in there, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm able to get that through the needle. Now, the illustration that is used here is, is an illustration that is also used in other writings that we see. In the Jewish writing, the Talmud, we see that this reference is in there. And what the comparison in this story, this illustration is meant to show, uh, the Persians used to say, and they would express it this way, it, it's easier to fit an elephant through the eye of a needle. Why? Because the elephant was the largest animal at that time. So they would take the largest animal and find the smallest thing that was human made, and they would say, try to get the elephant through the eye of the needle. And so the Jewish people would adapt this to make it fit. They would say, how hard it is? It's easier for a camel because that was the largest animal at that time to fit through a needle. Now, many people have said, I've, I've heard it read, um, that, you know, the illustration that is being used here is there was this thing called the tiny gate, and when, Jewish, uh, when people would come and bring their camels to the gate around the city wall, uh, the Jewish, or sorry, the camels would have to, they'd have to take off all the baggage. They'd have to, the camel would have to get down on their knees and kind of crawl through this tiny gate. It was to illustrate, you know, you had to remove everything and get on your knees. But there's never been anything that proves that, right? I mean, that's a great, a great story. They've never been able to, to find an example or, or a picture of a tiny gate. And, and there were also other gates. So they could have just basically gone around if they wanted to, to a different gate to go instead of, you know, the, the stress of, you know, taking the stuff off the camel. The, the point of the illustration was this. It's impossible. He, did, he didn't say that to go, well, if you can do this and do that, do this and do that. You, no, what he was saying was it, it's impossible. By man's efforts, by human hands, it is impossible. And so they're astonished. They can't believe the words that they just heard Jesus say in verse 26. And so they said to him, then who can be saved? If that's true, who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible. But not with God. 
for with God all things are possible. And so what he was saying, the bottom line was this, is you can't save yourself. It's impossible. The only person that can save you is God and the work that he did. But I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that I serve a God that specializes in the impossible. When, when Moses is leading the children of Israel and they come to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's chasing them, an impossible situation became possible because of the hand of God. When David stood before Goliath and everybody else is looking around scared and he sees this nine-foot Philistine giant, God's able to use five smooth stones to throw and take down what seemed to be an impossible situation. The same phrase, the same word that is used here, the word for impossible, is the same one that's used in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, when the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to bear a son. She said, how is that possible? I'm still a virgin. He says, because what is impossible with man is possible for God, because it is his work that he does. So Jesus was saying, you left What's left to yourself and what you can do, it'll never be enough. No amount of trying can secure it. Only the work that Jesus did. Peter goes on to say in verse 28, Behold, we have left everything to follow you. I mean, we're here. I don't have a business anymore. Jesus, I gave it all to follow you. As we look at James and John, they left their nets. Peter and Andrew, they did the same. Matthew got up from being a tax collector, and he left it all to follow Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about the end of their life in just a minute and what happened to them. Because they didn't necessarily get the cost up front, but the rich man did. Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecution and in the age to come and eternal life. Jesus responds to Peter and he gives him three different eras. Present age, age to come, eternal life. And he said, those people that go may lose family, but they're going to be blessed a hundred times. We don't really experience that here in America, but in other countries, it's very prominent. People who turn to Christianity, what happens? Their family disowns them. They're cast out. They don't talk. They don't associate with them. Some cultures in America do the same, depending on what sect of religion you're in. But Jesus says, look around. See every single person that's in here, the family that you've gained in Christ, the hundreds of people that gather around you that support and love you. He said, you'll be blessed now, then, and in eternity as well. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. In other words, the kingdom and how we view things is in no comparison to how God views things because what people consider first is nothing to Jesus. What people consider last here, a lot of times is everything in God's economy. When we look at Luke 14, we see this picture. It says, count the cost. We hear that phrase, count the cost of what it is before you follow Jesus. We hear that phrase, take up your cross. And we know what that means. He goes on to say in Luke 14, a person who builds a tower, don't they sit down and they, and they lay out a plan and say, this is what it's going to take. This is how much money it's going to cost. Do I have the resources before I decide to go through and break ground and try to build this tower? 
Do I have all the assets? Am I going to be able to finish the job? He says, because what happens if he just lays a foundation and he's not able to finish it, people are going to look at him and laugh at him. Look what this guy did. He couldn't even complete the task. He couldn't even finish what he started. And many of you may have seen, and recently, just this last week, a number of people who were heavily involved in the Christian faith have just walked away. He goes on to say, doesn't a king who goes into battle figure out how many men he has? How big his army, how much power he has before he goes to try to fight somebody else? Doesn't he count the cost and say, I I think I might be able to to win. I might be able to pull this off. I was listening to one of the the nutritionists. Many of you have watched the Marvel movies, right? Some of you, you know, saw Endgame recently. And I saw one of the trainers for Marvel. He made this statement. He said, you know, all these actors come to me and they say, Okay, this is great. I've been going through this diet regime. I've been slaving it away at the gym, you know, pushing, getting up early. I'm doing all this. At what point can I go back to normal? What, what point can I go back to eating like I was and, and not having to get up and work out? He said, never. He said, it's not this thing where you just arrive and then it's like, okay, I can stop doing that. He said, if you want to continue looking this way, feeling this way, having, it doesn't stop. And the same thing is true with Christianity. It's not a, this one-time decision and then it's like, I'm good. I can live how I want to. I can go back to normal. Because that's not what happened when transformation takes place when we come to Christ. We have a new creation, a new heart, a new mind, and we are transformed. And so basically, we have to understand, we have to count the cost. There is no cross that doesn't have a cost associated with it. I want to share one thing as we get ready to close here. You know, we talked about the rich young ruler who got the cost up front. In one instant, he saw what the end of his life would look like. But a lot of the disciples weren't as fortunate. And some of the ones we mentioned earlier... First of all, we see by historians that Matthew, one of the disciples, was killed with a sword in Ethiopia. He lost his life for the sake of the gospel. Simon the Zealot was cut in half in Persia. John the Baptist was beheaded. We see Paul was put in prison and he was beheaded in Rome. Bartholomew was filleted while he was still alive. Thaddeus was killed with bow and arrows for the sake of following Jesus. And let me tell you this, every other person that was there along the road, it didn't end well for them either. Philip and Andrew crucified. Peter crucified upside down. John was boiled in oil. Mark was drugged behind horses in Alexandria. Luke was hung. James was stoned to death. And doubting Thomas, killed with a spear. Every one of these followers laid their life down for Jesus. And so we relate back to the rich young man. And you might be here saying this today. (laughs) Hey, I, I hear what you're saying. I got it. Let's go down to the ATM in Princeton. I will pull my debit card out. I'll let you see my bank statement. 
I don't have to worry about that. I'm not, I'm not that guy, okay? I got just enough money to get what I need. But I found something that William Boyce wrote, and I, and I wanted to make it a little more applicable today, so I rewrote it. And it says this, Dear Lord, as I've been reading the account of the rich young ruler and his wrong choice, it has me thinking about who we are. No matter how much he had, he had no house for which to go home to and enjoy the air condition, to sit on his comfortable couch while watching Netflix on his flat screen TV, eating hot food out of a microwave or off of the stove. He wasn't able to receive medication for any illness he may have had, listen to music off of any one of his smart devices, wash his hands or body with clean running water, or go to sleep on his Serta pillow top or memory foam mattress or talk or FaceTime to someone he loves across the world on his phone, social media, or apps. If he was considered rich, then what does it make me? So the question we have to ask ourselves today as we wrestle with this story is, are we putting our stock and our hope in our works and our deeds and our actions, are we putting it in Jesus? I ask us all today, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that you have put as the Lord God in your life? If you came into an encounter with Jesus and he said, and you ask him that question, how would he respond to you? Only you know. It might not be property. It might not be money. It was different for everyone. Jesus said, narrow is the gate and few find it. It's a great struggle and few win it. It's a costly struggle and few pay it. The Bible says, if we could earn the favor of God by our behavior, then the cross was for nothing. So is our confidence in our goodness and our stuff? We can't embrace Christ while we continue to hang on to the things of the world. And so while the rich man placed his trust and riches many people place their trust in themselves they are their own gods self-absorbed fixed on materialistic things self-gratification if you are relying on those things for your eternity in heaven it will be impossible the gospel tells us this first and foremost that we repent of our sin we confess with our mouth our sin We trust in the Lord and believe on Him. Repent, confess, believe. And then after that, we follow. We follow what He's called us to do. And it's not a a necessary prayer that saves us. It's the repentance and faith behind the prayer that holds the salvation for us. And so today, will you bow your heads as we pray together? And I just want to ask you, you know Him? You serve Him? Do you love him? What's the one thing that's keeping you today from surrendering your life to him? There's no cross without a cost. Father, my prayer today is that each and every person that is in this place, that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction and truth and realness to us. 
that we might see what it is that has a hold of our hearts, God. You would draw us to you, God. We repent, confess, and believe on your name and follow after you. It might not cost us our lives, but it will cost us something. We just pray, God, that each and every person here today hear that voice. Pray it all in your precious and holy name. Amen. So as we close, let me just say we have some prayer people that will be here at the altar. If you have questions, if you want to know more what that means, following Jesus, if you felt like God has dealt with you today, we would love to talk to you and talk about next steps. If you're a first-time guest, please visit our VIP table on your way out. We love you guys. God bless. We hope you have a great week.